brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. All right, people, another day, another deep dive into the machinations of the big machine. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And if you ask me, it's getting harder to have an open-minded, non-political conversation or drill down into the nuances of nearly anything these days, whether it's viruses, vaccines, climate, or current events, because the propaganda of the political parties have bagged and tagged nearly every idea and ideological position and convinced the masses to shut themselves off from anything that smells of the world outside of their personal bubble. It's a dangerous place for the people to be when they stop talking to each other, But we will walk through the minefield as we do, because to me, conspiracy culture has always meant examining the unseen and secret plans of the capstone cabal, coordinating advantage for themselves, selling us on slogging through an unfair system as we grasp for the lost idea of the American dream, and going to great lengths to make sure the middle class and working poor are too busy arguing about abortion, religion, sports, racism, privilege, and the rest of it, to work together on the things that matter most to the people at the top. So today we're going to re-examine the systematic attacks on the black community since the time of slavery, the socioeconomic roadblocks they've had to deal with, and the heavy hand of the criminal justice system in keeping the American caste system in place as best it can. To do that, we have here today sociologists Dr. Angela Hattery and Dr. Earl Smith, two PhD-level professors dedicated to educating people on these very things, winners of multiple awards and authors of several great books together with titles like Prisoner Reentry and Social Capital, The Long Road to Reintegration, African American Families Today, Myths and Realities, The Social Dynamics of Family Violence, Policing Black Bodies, How Black Lives Are Surveilled and How to Work for Change, and Gender, Power, and Violence, Responding to Sexual and Intimate Partner Violence in Society Today, just to name a few. They're two highly educated experts with over 30 years experience that have gotten very comfortable with uncomfortable conversations, and I salute them for it. Smith and Hattery, welcome to the higher side. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Oh, well, thanks so much for doing this. I reached out after reading Policing Black Bodies and thought you covered a lot of ground that would be beneficial for us to talk about. 
And just so you guys have a little bit of context, I've always tried to make the Higher Side Chats a very broad and non-political, quote-unquote, conspiracy show. And I've always found it weird that the shows that have built up this conspiracy genre are usually white, conservative American men soapboxing about how unfair the system is. And it is unfair for anyone who's not connected. But to me, conspiracy means looking at the military putting chemical sprayers in the Pruitt-Igo projects in St. Louis or dark aspects of big pharma's history, such as the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, or running birth control experiments in the Philippines that hurt a lot of people, or using the criminal justice system to destroy black families and keep them in poverty, or stealing land from Native Americans. It's all in the soup, if you ask me. And we common folk should be united by these things, but for some reason, it descends into a debate over who has it worse, or how bad is it really for one group over another? A situation I'm sure you're both well familiar with by now to some degree, right? Absolutely. We hear these questions a lot. And how do you usually address it when this kind of stuff comes up? That could take an entire broadcast, actually. <laughs> but I think what we try to do is use facts and point people to history, reality, numbers, not that we have to get overly bogged down in the numbers, but one of the strategies that I use in class when I'm confronted with this kind of a question is to point out what the facts are. So if you're thinking about the criminal justice system, almost 50% of people who are incarcerated, just less than that, about 45% of all of the people that we have locked up in a jail cell are black men. And yet black men make up only 6% of the United States population. So that's probably suggesting that something's going on, right? That if it were just, and people toss the word random around without really understanding statistics, but if it were just random, it wouldn't look that way, right? So asking people to think about disproportionality. Another strategy I use is to ask students if they can imagine a situation in which a statistic like that would be reversed. Can they imagine living in the United States and instead of black men being almost 10 times more likely to be incarcerated than they are in the population, what would it look like if white men's incarceration rate were 10 times their membership in the population? Like, can you imagine that? And if you can't, then there's probably something going on. Those are just some of the strategies that I use. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to read a quote from Policing Black Bodies that I think most of our audience will appreciate, but you say, we wrote this book to make people uncomfortable, to disrupt stereotypes about black bodies and to debunk myths and poke at deeply held ideological beliefs, to expose the machine of racism. This book is meant to invoke discussion and controversy. Everyone who reads this book will likely find something they disagree with, and that's okay. What we hope to do is to get people thinking about the issues in ways that they haven't thought about them before as systemic and deliberate. And I think that really nails it, in particular, that ending. And I love a good raw conversation, but can you elaborate on the stereotypes and myths that you tend to face most often with this sort of material? Okay, so follow up on Professor Hattery's point about these black men who are overly incarcerated, even though they are less than 10% in this general population. 
So you would have, we have, not you would have, we have in our larger society stereotypes about black men, black boys, black teenagers, black men. We have stereotypes about these folks that they're always up to something that's not legal. They're big, uh, monstrous types. And if you don't watch out, they're going to get you. So when we lay out the argument that you just heard, we also have to talk about one of the chapters that we have in the book, exonerations. So what that tells us is that it all starts with the police, because these guys obviously are up to something. They did something. So we have to surveil them. And then when we catch them, we arrest them, we convict them, and then we lock them up. And that's a good thing because now they're off the street, blah, blah, blah. So goes the argument, so goes the stereotype. What we did in one of our chapters near the end of the book, we said, okay, then why is it that we now see and the public sees because it's become a part of a public conversation, all these exonerations taking place, meaning people did not commit the crimes for which they spent on average of 15 years in prison, and why disproportionately are those who are being exonerated black men? I mean, put the two things together. Connect the dots. You've arrested somebody on the front end for a crime they didn't commit because you think that this is what they do. And then 15, 20, 25, 40 years later, you have to let them out of prison because the slow moving system has found out, hey, guess what? They didn't do it. Not a technical violation, but they absolutely didn't do it. And disproportionately, you can look up the data, those persons, mostly men, few women are involved, mostly men who are being exonerated are black men. I don't know what else you have to talk about. <laughs> Something is absolutely wrong here. So the stereotype out there is that these black men, I mean, oh God, we use a little video sometimes called the slowest car in town. And there's a highly professional black male with his suit and tie on and his briefcase. It's probably in the 70s, made in the 70s. And he starts off on the top floor. And by the time he gets to the bottom, different whites have gotten on and off the elevator. By the time he gets to the first floor, the portrait of him is that he's a criminal, drug addict, foaming at the mouth. And it's just the imagery of who he is as a black man in American society. So the stereotype exists. People can say, I don't see it. I've never heard of it. And that's why we talk about it in the book, because it's real and it's deadly. It's absolutely deadly. If I could jump in there and dive down just one slice even more deeply into the exoneration, we actually gave a talk many years ago and a provost actually at a highly ranked college said, well, you would expect more black men to be in the group of exonerates because black men are more likely to go to prison to start with. And we said, okay, so that's an example of, you know, kind of getting some pushback. And in fact, when you drill down even farther into those numbers, 
black men are 1.5 times more likely to be wrongfully convicted than they're even represented in the prison population to start with. So even there, in that deep dive slice, yet again, the numbers themselves tell a different story, right? So if black men are 40 or 45% of the prison population, we'd expect them to be 40 or 45% of the exonerate population, but instead they're more like 75 or 80%. And I don't wanna you know, have your listeners be too tied up in the stats, but I think that they can help underscore that there's something going on that's not just random. And a lot of it is caused by the social stereotype. Mm-hmm. It's out there. And we have examples, and you've heard it because they're really simple and they're clear. Young Black guys, they go into the store and automatically it's assumed they're in there to steal something. I wouldn't expect that to happen to my young white male son or cousin or uncle. But it happens disproportionately to young black men. And it also happens to people who are visible, movie stars. It happens to Oprah Winfrey. She's not a a male, but it happens to her. It happens to Forrest Whitaker, big movie star, Oscar-winning movie star. So it doesn't matter what your achievements are. If you fit that demographic, then that stereotype sticks. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't. I mean, it absolutely shouldn't. And yet, people in that demographic know by the time they're probably 10 or 12, if not sooner, this is what I have to deal with throughout my life. Yes, great points. And I'm reminded of a Dave Chappelle special recently where there was a tough-looking young Black guy in the crowd, and he, he gives them shit for a minute, as a comedian should, But then he says, hey, be easy on this guy because he's under a tremendous amount of pressure to be perfect, you know, and it's not the same kind of pressure that other young people deal with. And young people aren't perfect. They're constantly making mistakes. So if you criminalize what is just misbehavior or criminalize typical coming of age lashing out, that's how you get into the you know, school to prison pipeline situation. And it does start very young with this kind of bias. And I do like really creative ways to examine injustice. And I think exonerations is a great one. And another one is like, how did they get in the system in the first place? And it is through that school to prison pipeline a lot of the times. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for your listeners who may not spend as much time thinking about this as we do, which is probably a lot of them, I think even when we started looking at the school to prison pipeline, we were thinking of the pipeline from juvenile detention to adult prison, that once a young man or woman, but it's way disproportionately men of any race, once a young man is caught in the system of juvenile detention and is accumulating priors, that key word in sentencing, that they're then disproportionately likely to be sucked into the prison system. And When we started reading and paying attention more carefully to what you were just describing, which is the criminalization of misbehavior or mischief, it was pretty stunning to see that kids were being arrested as we detail in the book, you know, the case of a kid just one county over from where we were living at the time 
who was arrested and handcuffed and put in the backseat of a police cruiser for taking a 65 cent carton of milk off the lunch line. It's just absurd. And you might say, okay, well, that was rare, but it's really not that rare. There are tons and tons of cases of kids being arrested in schools for things like that. There's another case of a kid who took some chicken nuggets. And usually when you dig down into the story, it's not even took. And so I want to make sure that the listener isn't sort of falsely lulled into thinking, well, yes, that kid took the 65 cent carton of milk. They should pay for that. You know, in this case, the kid was on free and reduced lunch. The kid was entitled to a carton of milk <laughs> for, free. for free. You know, one of the chicken nugget cases, the kid claims that he was hungry, that his buddy had a lunch plan and gave him chicken nuggets off his tray. And so, like, first of all, there's nothing that the child, and I want to emphasize these are children, there's nothing the child did that was even wrong. And even if they did take a carton of milk, I mean, when I was a kid growing up, something like that probably didn't even make it home. Maybe if you were a sort of serial poacher <laughs> of the carton of milk, someone would call your mom, hopefully not your dad in my case. He was harder, but, you know, somebody might call your mom and say, you know, what's going on? But more likely than not, it would have meant you had to stay after school and bang some erasers, you know, on the brick wall, on the playground or something like that. And so this idea that we have criminalized the most ridiculousness, it's devastating to black families because when that happens, those kids often do end up in juvenile detention, or if not, as some other folks have documented, 50% of black children have some touch with the foster care and child protective services, child welfare system. And if they get touched, that doesn't necessarily mean they go into foster care, but if they're touched by that system, then if they steal the 65 cent carton of milk, they're definitely going to juvenile detention. And now they are in the system. And so that sort of first point of contact, it's hard to overstate how important that is in completely ruining someone's life that those systems they're just nearly impossible to get out of so they have devastating consequences yes yes great points and i went to private school for most of my life until i got kicked out and had to go to public school when i saw there was a cop walk in the halls i was definitely shocked i was like i don't know if this is appropriate but i agree it's going to affect black kids even worse but this is an interesting one. So when I've tried to do shows like this in the past, I've actually gotten feedback from black guys that say, we don't need your liberal coddling. It's insulting and it puts us in a position of inferiority to you to even insinuate that we need your help or that we need this stoner white boy to do a show about black people. You know, it's like damned if you do, damned if you don't. And I'm sure you've heard this from people with these sorts of opinions. How do you typically respond to that? I mean, Earl doesn't have to deal with it the same way I might, but I am curious when you face that, what do you say? It's a great question. I get it all the time. You know, what does a white person know about policing black bodies? And one of the ways that I respond to that is I don't know what it feels like. I can't know what it feels like because I'm not black. But I have learned that you have to sort of walk the walk, not just talk the talk. And so you have to really listen and you have to really demonstrate that you've thought about the issues carefully and systematically. And also, I think, as a white person, 
It's about centering the voices of black people. So this isn't my opinion. I mean, I'm only the expert because I've studied and interviewed and observed and done science to be able to arrive at data points and empirical analysis to be able to make the argument. You know, I think it's a fair critique. I think white people need to hear that critique and be okay getting it and still get back in the ring to do the work. But I'm going to toss that to Dr. Smith. Well, I mean, I would argue that I've had to do the same thing. Study, research, spend time in one classroom after another classroom, after another year, after another year. I mean, it takes a long time to pick up bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, a ridiculously long time to pick up a PhD degree. So just being of the demographic doesn't make you an expert on the topic. And we make this clear. I make it clear. And this is why we have a lot of sort of lightweight talk that passes around about mentors and who can be a mentor. Do you have to be an NBA star? Do you have to be president of the United States? Those issues are talked about, but in reality, on the ground, you're basically talking about having people in other people's lives who can help them steer the course, follow the pathways that keep them away from police, that keep them away from juvie, that keep them away from the state prison system. And that's real. And there are real issues in and around the quote unquote Black community that need to be addressed. And I'm glad that you brought this up. Nobody needs anybody telling them anything, but what people often need is a little good advice. Yes. And I would argue that that advice can come from anybody who's not trying to harm you. We don't need snake oil salespeople selling people down the drain, but we sure need people to keep relaying the message that there's nothing wrong with graduating from high school, that there's nothing wrong with, and this is going to inflame some folks, <laughs> get ready, there's nothing wrong with not making babies, okay, at 14 or 15 years of age, because our data shows that you need to be well-equipped and prepared to take care of those babies especially in a society where the social safety net is shrinking and disappearing, as you mentioned in your introduction, the disappearance of the American dream. So we do need people inside of these communities, working with young people, keeping them on the straight and narrow. Far as I'm concerned, far as we're concerned, I don't care. They can be from the Philippines. They can be from wherever as long as they are not looking to harm folks. I'm going to stay away from the baby conversation. But yeah, well, it's a difficult <laughs> one, but it's a real conversation. But what I will say is one of the things <laughs> I find really enlightening about teaching the book Policing Black Bodies in a class, in a diverse class of students, is remembering that for the most part, we're all educated in the same system. So when we talk about the history of sort of how we got here and we talk about the constitution and we talk about all of the early forms of policing black bodies, the black students are as surprised as the white students. 
because that's not really taught anywhere. A lot of students of every race tell me, yeah, I sort of heard about Black history in school was from Harriet Tubman to Martin Luther King. And that's kind of it, you know, the highlights. And so I think it's also instructive to remember that with very few exceptions, we all came through the same system, which does not teach the kind of stuff that's important to understand these topics, regardless of who your identity is. Mm -hmm. I was teaching a course last semester with a lot of women from various parts of the world, Northern Africa, Ecuador, China, Bahamas. I don't know. It was just unusual mix of primarily women who came here from someplace else. There were a couple of African-American women in the class as well who were born here. And this was a class looking at various race and ethnic groups, the sort of race and ethnicity 101, you know, who came over on the Mayflower, who came through Ellis Island, which groups used various methodologies of upward mobility to enhance their situation socially, economically, politically. And after two or three classes, this young African-American woman pulls me aside and she says, oh my gosh, I never learned about these things. And I mean, she was on it. I don't think she missed, and this, we got interrupted with COVID-19 when they closed all the schools. But up until the point we were pushed out, she was sitting there, bright-eyed, taking notes. And I said to myself, I'm thinking, don't they learn this stuff? Nope. I mean, why aren't they knowledgeable about some of these basic facts? And that's the problem. Schools buy textbooks from companies that the board or whatever, whoever it is, depending on what state, approves, and they want to make sure that this isn't in it and that isn't in it. and and these facts might be too hard for third and fourth graders, and they strip out certain stuff. And if the textbook company doesn't abide by the rules, they don't get the contract. Now you're talking about politics. Mm -hmm. But it interrupts education. I'm sure you and your listeners have seen the data. You look around the world and you look at where we are with mathematics, science, history, we don't come close to some of these other countries. And I'll say this, and since we have a little bit of time, I think this footnote will work. We taught a summer course a couple of summers ago for young boys, young girls, teenagers who came from... Oh, they came from the Balkans. They were high school kids on an exchange program. For the State Department. And we taught a class with these kids in it. And I'm thinking, oh, gosh, how are we going to get through this? And we took them through some of the stuff we're talking about now. And we may have shown a clip from Roots, the first iteration of Roots, which we ended up buying the complete DVD set for one of their teachers to take back to the Balkans because they, they didn't have access to it. My point is, those young, I'll just call them young people, people 
were so up on U.S. social history, it was mind-boggling. Hmm. I mean, I'm telling you, I, they, oh, can you remember that? They ran example? circles. Yeah, I mean, we taught on the 4th of July. So we asked the American students to talk about the history of the 4th of July, and it took about five minutes. And we asked each of these kids to talk about the history of the independence in their countries. And they went on and on oh, for, gosh. you know, a half an hour citing things that had happened in the 15 and 1600s. And they just really ran circles around the American kids. It was kind it's of unbelievable. pathetic. Absolutely unbelievable. This is what we're up against. And so when people say, well, I don't believe that, or this is fake news. I mean, these numbers of deaths from COVID are not fake news. Hmm. And yet, if you can stand it night after night, watching the news, the numbers are deadly. And then there'll always be a clip of some people in the parking lot somewhere coming out of a store and say, I don't believe it. I want my freedom. Why should I put on the mask? Right. Well, it's tough to know what to believe these days because there are so many people who have an agenda behind the information they're putting out. There's moneyed interests involved that have been here for a long time. And it's like, man, maybe we should have uh, restored some faith in our institutions before we had a crisis situation because that's where we are now. And it's just chaos. But we are really cruising along here. And I wanted to dive into, if we could, a little bit of the deep history here, because Earl, I've heard you in a previous interview say that there's always this debate, is it race or is it class? And it's actually just both. It shouldn't be difficult to say that there are both. There are things that keep poor people poor, and there are things that keep black people poor, and sometimes they overlap. There is definitely a Venn diagram there of a huge place in the middle that a lot of people fall into. And so if we're going to talk about the history, obviously we know a bit about slavery, but we hear terms like Jim Crow or black codes. And I'm not sure everyone really knows what those terms mean. We see ghettos and inner cities today and people still have the thought of, well, why can't black communities just get it together? Slavery was a long time ago. But there are a lot of institutionalized socioeconomic disadvantages when it comes to things like bank loans, ownership of property, education, as you said, and aggressive policing, of course. But when it comes to some of these less obvious mechanisms that work to keep black communities poor, what are some of these factors and aspects of history that you think are important to highlight that are pretty unknown? Well, the race class issue is very important because it plays out differently for different racial and ethnic groups. We recognize in the U.S. Census five or six quote-unquote races and one or two ethnic groups, ethnic groups who also have a quote race. And as we explain all the time, these things are not fixed. They change. And in fact, if you follow the debate coming up to the next census, there was this attempt to put in another category called... It's MENA, and it did go in in 2020. But it's out now. Oh, okay. Middle Eastern, North Africa Africa acronym, M-E-N-A. The last... The last thing I saw about a week ago was the census pulled it back out. And so those kinds of structural issues show us that race and ethnicity is kind of fluid. It changes and it has changed over time. 
So when you have a race class debate, it's unfortunate that it's always an either or debate. We don't see it that way. It has to be connected because they're intertwined. So a young white male just graduated from college, just got a job. This is hypothetical. He's going to go off and make his way into the world. To do that, you got to have money. And you got to have money to pay the rent. You got to have money to put first month rent, a month of security, the utility companies that give you water and lights and electricity and, of course, cable. When you look at that bill, it is huge for somebody just getting off the ground. Now, we know for the same work, you take two people, one white, one black, and we could put in different racial ethnic groups, but I'll just keep it white and black. We know for the same job, it's clear, even in our business and academe, the white person is going to be paid more. And so you ask the question, why? Why is that? What is the tax that's being levied here? Why are we paying the white person more? And, you know, it depends on who you're talking to and where this is taking place, but you'll get this, well, that's just the way it is. So something is happening right from the jump. So now these persons who are starting off making their way into the world, there's various handicaps. There's a price to be paid for being Black. Later on, you might want to buy a house. Now you have to have 20%, 30% for the down payment. You got to do this through the bank. Most people don't have that kind of money where they can just go and buy a house. The bank's going to ask you all kinds of credit. And a lot of those questions are tied up in history. Mm-hmm. Well, for sure. I mean, I think that let's just stick with the example of buying a house because I think it's one of the most... It's the most important thing that we do. It's also one of the most illustrative of the kind of deep, the inequalities that started hundreds of years ago, right? So if we just go back hundreds of years, um, white people could buy property, including other people, and they could use that property to leverage more property and more loans, right? So we talk about examples like John Brown, who founded Brown University, was a shipbuilder and he also owned people. He was a slaveholder and he could not only use those enslaved people to build the ships for free, but he could also use those enslaved people as collateral to get more loans to build his business. So now John Brown and he is, did. and he, he did. did, and John Brown is super wealthy, right? And John Brown was probably very smart and he probably worked really hard. But part of the way that he amassed all that wealth was by owning other people who couldn't in turn own anything at all, right? And all of that wealth, the part that he holds on to, which we all try to hold on to some, right, gets passed down intergenerationally. And so when we think about the fact that, you know, even low income poor white people still have 10 times more wealth than low income poor black people, the linchpin to most of that is owning a home or owning part of a home. Even if it's a double wide trailer in a rural community that's isolated and poor, there's still some equity in that that can be leveraged to pay some college tuition 
or help a kid buy their own home or pay bail when you get arrested. And when we begin to disentangle all of that, it doesn't mean that poor white people aren't disadvantaged. This is where the race and class comes together. Right. Right. Let me add here, fast forward from back then to now, 2019, Newsday. I don't know if Newsday is circulated as far as San Diego, but Newsday is a Long Island, New York newspaper. Newsday did the classic experiment using testers to see if the housing market in Long Island, New York was open to everybody. And guess what? That test is so old. People have been doing it since the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Newsday sent testers out, a white family, a black family, that kind of thing. And they came back really, really shocked. At least they were shocked. I wasn't shocked. They came back shocked that the housing market is as segregated and covenant as it was back in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. This is 2019 experiment. So you can see where some people are locked out of the market or they're sent to certain submarkets, zip codes, where the houses are going to definitely go underwater, they're overpriced, and all that stuff is being done systematically. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, I mean, I'm sure whites get charged overpriced for houses, overpriced for cars, but in many of these research experiments, it's non-whites who get the short end of this stick. Yes, I understand. And To me, one of the major problems is that poor white people have been conditioned to identify more with the Rockefellers or the Morgans than their fellow struggling black counterparts. And by the same token, I do. They're white. We have an ideology in this country that says if you're white, you're better than everybody else. Now, people say, oh, no, you know, we're all equal in that. With this COVID and all this mess that's going on with COVID and telling people whether we should send our kids back to school or not, there is now front page stories this week where white parents are coming into quote unquote pods so that their kids can be taught by private tutors, quote unquote teachers, and have made it clear that essential workers, that's a code word, essential workers, kids, will not be allowed into their pods. You hear me? Mm-hmm. Now, these are the people who brought you that pizza that you needed, that Chinese meal for your family because you didn't want to get COVID. These are the people who did that, essential workers. But now their kids will not be allowed into these pod circles that are growing up all over the country, especially in suburbs. I don't know if it's reached California yet, but it's definitely here on the East Coast. And this is where the legacy of all these other systems like chattel slavery. I mean, think how deep it is that I have to tell you that the third president of the United States owned people. Not all of them did. Well, he did because he's more famous than so many others. George Washington. Jefferson was unfreaking believable. He owned people. 
He reneged on promises that he made to that woman he raped and gave four or five kids with. And yet you lay that out in class and I can tell you the dean or somebody else will be calling you up because you can't lay out that kind of truth. That's deep truth. <laughs> well, that's the kind of stuff that we like to talk about around here, the raw stuff. What are we talking about? <laughs> yes. And so something I also just sort of learned about in recent years is that there are unknown aspects of history where black communities did thrive. They used to call Washington, D.C. Chocolate City. There was a thriving black community in New York that the elite leveled so they could have Central Park, Seneca Village. And there was a black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was dismantled after the Tulsa race massacre. What can be said about these situations where... Black communities did, quote unquote, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, so to speak, only to be kicked back down to the bottom rung of the ladder. For those people who say, why can't they get it together? Slavery was a long time ago. Well, here are some examples where they they did. And then it was like, nope, got to knock you back down. No, I mean, I think those are such great examples. And I think in many ways, the whole argument of the book Policing Black Bodies is about understanding that the criminal justice system is just the latest tool, to use your words, to knock Black people down, to keep them from forward progress. You know, if you look at, and you mentioned several examples of these historical facts, whether it's the Black Codes or Jim Crow, those systems came in place when suddenly black people were starting to get more freedom, right? So the first is emancipation. So suddenly you have 4 million black people who are free. That's pretty scary to white people who were like, oh my gosh, right? What's going to happen? And not only afraid physically, but I think fairly, they were afraid. They knew that black people were hard workers because they'd been extracting their labor for hundreds of years, right? And so they were afraid like, wow, if they get a little bit of freedom, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen next? And I think that that was especially profound. To go back to your earlier point, the people the most afraid of that were low-income whites, right, who were also on the economic margins. And so the landed whites, the plantation owners, co-opt low-income white people, many of whom were also sharecroppers, quite frankly, into a race war, right, yes. into a collusion against Black people. And once that happens, it's sort of never been able to be disconnected. So, you know, you move forward and at that point you start arresting black people for loitering so you can put them in a plantation prison so they can continue to pick cotton. That sort of plantation economy begins to wear itself out a little bit as industrialization moves forward. And then you have the system of Jim Crow, which frankly costs poor white people a heck of a lot of money because duplicating every single institution, even if it was a lower quality was darn expensive, right? Two hospitals, two waiting rooms at the bus station, two swimming pools, <laughs> right? Like that's a lot of money that could have been invested into something else. Two movie theaters. Two movie theaters, but white people buy into that as a way of sort of marking and declaring their whiteness. You move forward and, you know, as we argue in the book, the modern day criminal justice system doesn't look anything like the criminal justice system of 100 years ago because Jim Crow kept black people for the most part. And you have some great examples of black successes, but for the most part, kept black people from accessing the American dream. 
once the Jim Crow structure begins to fall apart, something else comes into place. And what is it? It's the criminal justice system, right? So it's sort of at every single turn where black people begin to get some power, the white, you know, supremacist structure figures out a different way. Look, the modern example right now today is voter suppression. Okay? You have to make a law to allow people to do something that we all stand up in the first grade with, you know, salute the flag and we're very happy because as citizens you can at least vote regardless of your color blah blah blah. Well, guess what? Doesn't work that way. So you fast forward today and you have redistricting, gerrymandering, gerrymandering. you tell people to go to the firehouse, it's going to be open till nine o'clock to vote and the place is closed when they get there. You got all that kind of crap going on, even with Congress fooling with the Voting Voting Rights Rights Act. Act in 2020. So it is unbelievable that these other kinds of systems are in place. And if you're white, and this is a part of the discussion now since the murder of George Floyd, if you're white, you never had to think about those things. You never had to actually deeply think about where am I going to go to shop when we don't have grocery stores in these communities in cities like Chicago? Not in deep rural Mississippi, even though they don't have them there either, in the Delta area, where we did some research, but in big cities like Chicago. You go into New York, Harlem is fashionable right now. I'm sure you've heard of Harlem. Yeah, of course. You know, Harlem, <laughs> Harlem is where you know Blacks were like Tulsa and some of these other places. Right now, the gentrification movement in Harlem is unbelievable similar to what happened with the building of Central Park. People are being moved out, whites and others, but people with money are moving in. They're taking these old brownstones. They're fixing them up. The places look fabulous. And all this just keeps pushing a good sector of the Black population further and further someplace else. In fact, I'm not even sure where, pushing where. And it's deadly. It's absolutely deadly. But I want to go back to a point you made a minute ago about voting, because one of the things we talk about in the book is felony disenfranchisement. And, you know, I don't know why whoever thought up the idea that people with a felony shouldn't be able to vote. But it's quite curious that felony disenfranchisement becomes super important after the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Right. So it's after that that you start to felonize possession of pretty low level drugs that Black people use. And pretty soon you have huge swaths of the Black community that have now do no longer have the right to vote, right? Just 30 or 40 years after they got the right to vote. I don't think you can underestimate or overestimate, I mean, how important that is, right? It's another tool for keeping Black people out of any position of power. I mean, we talk about in the book, I talk about it in classes all the time, Forget about voting for the president. And there's some excellent work about various presidential elections and the role that voter disenfranchisement played in that. But when you disenfranchise Black people, disproportionately low-income Black people, that means in a precinct or 
jurisdiction, very few people in that community are going to be able to pick the chair of the school board or the prosecutor in their county <laughs> or the sheriff or any number of people who will have a direct impact on their daily life. They're locked out of the political apparatus, which contributes to you know the devastation in those communities. And then yes. you make examples out of individuals. We generally don't talk about individuals, but you make examples out of individuals. And I'll give you two of these examples. There's a black woman, she's probably in her upper 30s. She got out of prison. She had no idea how all these laws work. And she went and voted. Do you remember that? Yeah. And she's been given a prison sentence for voting. She said she just didn't understand the laws. Then when you go back to the school to prison pipeline, there's the headlines passing around this week of a young African-American female student who didn't do her online homework, virtual class. She didn't do the homework. She's been incarcerated. What? In a juvie. There you go. So now we've For not doing the homework. We've criminalized voting. What's the charge? Oh, probably truancy or something like that. Yeah, I can't. I'd have to look it up. Jeez. Um, but this is in the news this week. Well, you guys are making a lot of excellent points. And Angie, I do really like that point that the dirty secret is that the people in the 1% have used poor white people to focus down on black communities instead of focusing up on the 1% that has half the wealth of the entire nation. And it keeps us fighting amongst ourselves and allows them to keep running the show. I think that is an important aspect. And yes, prisons are also such such cesspools because they have no advocates. If an ex-con cannot vote, cannot make any decisions about the state of prisons, then people just ignore them. And then their uh, labor and Rape factories, really, it's it's really cruel and unusual punishment that it's common knowledge that if you go to prison, well, good luck getting raped. Hope you like being raped. Like, that's yeah. messed up. Yeah. And it's because no one's advocating for the prison population. But another thing I wanted to try to fit in here was prison labor. And I think we're aware of prison labor, but it gets pretty gross when you examine the details. You write about plantation prisons that popped up after the Civil War, that even in the 13th Amendment, it has a loophole where it says, We're abolishing slavery and involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for a crime. So what do they do? To quote your book, there were laws that allowed the police to arrest black men for status offenses like loitering and incarcerate them specifically at plantation prisons during planting and harvesting seasons when the demand for this free black labor increased dramatically. These same men were released conveniently after the planting or harvesting season ended, their labor extracted at no cost because the state no longer wanted to pay to house and feed them. And that is just one aspect. But can you talk to us about how this soft slavery continued well on after the Civil War and prison labor is still going on today? Well, we have a beautiful example here. We put together a course We taught at a very private, elite elite liberal arts college for a long time. And we put together a course in the summer specifically to fight the notion that students need to go overseas, study abroad to learn something about culture. 
And we put together a course saying, you know, darn it, you need to learn something about what's going on in the United States. And so we put together this course called Social Stratification in the South. And people can Google it and they'll see Social Stratification in the Deep South. If they Google it, you'll see articles written about the courses. It's a unique course with full credit for the students who took the course. We got on a bus and we went into the Deep South. We had white students, black students, Puerto Rican students, Chinese students, a real mix of students, men and women. And I'm going to tell you something. When you hit deep into Louisiana, Mississippi, with that kind of a crowd, you attract attention. So we've taught this course like four times. But the point is, one part of that course was to look at plantation prisons. And we ended up with a real neat experience at Parchman Penitentiary in the Mississippi Delta. And parchment is... It's like 50 miles by 50 miles. Unbelievable. Just unbelievable prison, farms. And over the course of the four times we taught it every other year, they moved into the business of catfish farms. And if you know, catfish farms were lucrative throughout Mississippi. And once the prison took up catfish farming, And we write about this in a paper we published. The private businesses went under because they couldn't compete with free labor. In walking around the town that surrounds the prison, uh, we could see prisoners in striped uniforms, the various uniforms that said something about their status. We could see prisoners working in town doing everything from cutting grass to carpentry, painting in these little towns surrounding the prison. The prison labor system is unbelievable. So I wanna give a couple of other examples that I think are really important for your listeners. We actually have no problem with inmates working. I think that inmate work as opposed to labor is really important. You know, we've spent time in prisons, something that's not in the book, but our next upcoming book, which we'd love to talk to you about, you know, when it finally comes out in another year or two, is on solitary confinement. And we spent three summers doing interviews and ethnography in solitary, literally we were in solitary confinement units in a state prison system. We're in favor of inmates having opportunities to work. Many of them want to work. It gives you something to do. You can learn some skills. For some folks, those skills will even translate into a job after they get released. Certainly not at Parchman, but in many prison systems, they earn something, you know, which allows them to buy some commissary items or, you know, pay off a little bit of a finer fee. Buy water. So what we have a problem with is the extraction of that labor for no value. So the example that Earl was starting to give about the bottled water. So we know someone in a prison system in New York who sews sweatshirts. He works in a sweatshirt shop and he makes 33 cents an hour in the sweatshirt shop. A bottle of water in the commissary is still a dollar, just like it would be at 
Giant or Safeway or Publix or any local market. So he has to work three hours to earn enough money to buy one bottle of water. That's what we have a problem with. But he has to buy the water. Because the water in the cell is dirty and gross. can't drink it. Right. So that's what we have a problem with is that, you know, we would challenge your listeners to think, would I be willing to, at a $10 an hour job, work three hours to buy a $30 bottle of water? That would be absurd, right? The fact that, you know, we detail in the book and in a classroom and again, encourage your listeners if you... Prison industry. Yeah, if prison industries and especially the state system you know, we can only speak about the states that we've looked at, but most states function this way, that if you're a state agency, you have to buy furniture and cleaning supplies from the local state prison industry system. So in Virginia, it's called Virginia Correctional Enterprises, VCE for short. And we talk about in the book being new to the university and you go through training about how, you know, you have to learn to buy furniture and all that stuff that you would have to do in a job. And if you don't think about, you just say, oh, we buy the furniture from VCE. If you don't dig underneath that, you probably don't even realize you're buying it from a prison system. So we decided to investigate a little bit of Virginia Correctional Enterprises. We sat in the library at this particular university and opened up the catalog for furniture that you can buy from Virginia Correctional Enterprises. And we could literally see the very chairs that we were sitting in. And the chairs retailed for $600 a piece. Someone working in the free market making furniture would make around between $18 and $22 an hour. Inmates make $0.54 an hour. And so they're not paid. You know, they have to work, what, two hours to get a bottle of water. But the chair still retails at $600, right? It's not like it retails for a 1,000% less just because you didn't pay the laborer an equivalent wage, right? So you work in a state organization. Students love these stories because we go, go look at your dorm room furniture, Google your dorm room furniture, and you'll figure out that someone was paid 54 cents an hour to make that furniture. And the university had to pay the same that they would pay at Ikea, right? That's what we have a problem with. Yeah. Industries making tons of money off mostly black people's free labor, right? Right. And there is an old phrase, something to the degree of a child who doesn't feel included in the village will burn it down just to feel its warmth. And (laughs) I've always liked that because it's like you have to give people a path. You can't just ignore them and give them no options because for your own safety, that's a bad policy because people need to feel like they have some hope or they're just going to be willing to take you out with them. You know, if all I have is prison, well, I'm going to take you out with me. And it's like, it's a real chaotic situation to have people who do not feel as if there's any way to succeed. It's like backing a scared animal into a corner. They're just going to lash out because why not? I love your description because it really resonated with what we saw and what we've learned about solitary confinement. So a lot of people might be surprised or grossed out to know sometimes inmates in solitary confinement will throw their bodily fluids and stuff on guards, on COs. And why would you do that? It's gross. It's disgusting. But when you think about what you just said, if that's the only thing they can control, they'll do it to feel some sense of control, right? Yeah, I think that your point is 100% right on. And, And if you couple this question of prison labor with a discussion of 
bail and fines and fees, you know, 20 to 30% of people who are incarcerated today are there because they can't pay bail or they can't pay a fine or a fee. If you gave them a pathway by working in the kitchen or answering the phone for the DOT as they do in New York or making a license plate or something to earn money so that they could pay off that debt, I would think you would probably get some good work out of folks. They would be motivated. But at 30 cents an hour, you'll never, ever, and that's at the high end of the pay scale. I mean, a lot of people are making 10, 12 cents an hour. How hard are you going to work to get out of debt? It's not motivating, right? Right. Exactly. I agree with you. And so we don't have a ton of time left. I wanted to leave some space for solutions. Of course, a lot of this stuff will just be hypothetical because we don't really have uh, the decision-making power uh, that we might want. But this systemic racial inequality has been going on in America for as long as we've had black and white people. And these poverty traps we've talked about affect us all. How do we even approach lasting solutions without furthering the divide? And this is always where we end. And this is where, you know, this is where it's hard, but we're better at describing the problems. I would say there's sort of two tracks. One is we have got to talk honestly about our racial history and not pretend it didn't happen or pretend that it ended 400 years ago. I think we have to be honest about that. And we have to look at these embedded systems that allowed certain people to make money and amass wealth and other people not to. Like that's an important part of the conversation. We can't move forward until we talk about that. But when it comes to the criminal justice system, I think some things that would alleviate the outcomes, if not the you know root causes, I think some of the things that would alleviate some of the outcomes would be things like decriminalizing a lot of drugs That's happening. We lock up about half a million people a year. 20% of the prison population is there for low-level drug possession. Crazy. That's crazy, right? So that's one. 20 to 30% are in jail or prison of people who are incarcerated are in jail or prison because they can't pay bail. And yet every study, and we have colleagues doing this work, every study that's been done suggests that like 99.9% of people who are charged show back up when they're supposed to. So eliminating bail, money bail for the vast majority of cases. I mean, maybe you don't send the axe murderer back out on the street, but, you know, we're locking up people who've never been proven guilty. They've never been convicted of a crime. We need to rethink the use of police. We don't go near the whole question of defund, get rid of the police, but we think you need to rethink the use of police. We saw something the other day where police were going to go after people who came into the state where you're supposed to quarantine. They said, well, you don't need police for that. We need to also get really serious about space travel. (laughs) I I mean, you know, I'm going to laugh, but think about all the money that's spent on space travel. And I don't think we can name five things that we've gotten in return for this. We need to get out of Afghanistan. We need to stop flying jets over the ball stadium. You know how much money it costs to put five of those bluebirds that fly over the blue angels over the stadium? I mean, it's unbelievable the cost for that. 
We need to stop doing the, we need to get out of war, get out of the business of war. You know, let the Afghanis go and do their thing. We need to get out of that particular business. Yes. It ruins lives. Men and now women get tied up in that. And then when they get back home, they can't get the medical care that they need. The VA hospital is the worst hospital system on the earth. Clean all that mess up. We had lunch with a student, former student who worked at Walter Reed Hospital. And here's the description. I don't know if you pay attention to the racetrack where they run horses, not right now, but when they have horse races, the Belmont and all that, Mm -hmm. there's something called the backtrack or something like that. And this is where all the attendants live. This is where all the people that clean up the horse crap live. This is where the people who walk the horses live. And in many of these backtracks, these are some of the worst slums you've ever seen. No heat, no air conditioning, people sleeping on cots. And yet when the race comes out, oh my gosh, people got on these big hats, they're sipping mint juleps, they're running these horses in the ground. This is the kind of stuff that needs to come to a halt. Yes. You know, put this money, put all this wealth to use to take care of people. I mean, good God, you couldn't give people more than $5.75 a day for food in food stamps. I mean, I what mean, are they going to do? Eat themselves to death? Yeah. Right. Well, there's a lot of people that talk about food stamps itself being a, kind of a, a conspiracy to support only the corporate food companies. Because like you said, the farmer's market, they don't have the machine. Right. But who's got the machine? KFC's got it. You know, no, Walmart's got it. it. Right. Yep. Kraft, macaroni and cheese you can purchase, yep. you know. Yep. Wonder Bread, all these things that are bad for us and corporate yep. controlled because they know they're crushing the middle and lower class. So they're like, all right, let's put our lobbyists in the government to give people some money that they can only selectively use on our products, give it right back to us and feel as if we're doing something for them. That's the other thing. Get rid of these lobby organizations. What's that thing in 13? Oh, Alec. Do you know about Alec? No. Oh, Alec is a... It's like a super lobby group that pulls together. It's an organization of politicians and corporations. And some corporations that have, well, Walmart recently left Alec, but lots of corporations are in Alec and they write bills for politicians. Yep, they write them. They they write write the bills. Hmm. And so the bill might be something like a lot of Second Amendment bills come out of Alec because there's a lot of money made in selling ammunition, for example. Yeah, you got to check out Alec and your listeners should check it out because it's they literally write the bills that politicians bring to the floor and they do it at both the national level and also at the state level. It's a really fascinating way in which you're propping up these businesses through this legislative system that appears to be free and equal to all of us, but clearly isn't. Right. Man, this is a tangled web of corruption out there, and it's hard to unravel it all. Some solutions that you mentioned in the book that I like, well, of course you say we should pass laws that prohibit making money off policing. There should be no finances involved at all, because obviously that's where you get corruption and you incentivize putting more people in jail and ticketing more people. You can't 
do that because it's going to get slanted and it's going to get out of control as it is. Uh, you've also talked about dismantling the private prison system. Definitely pro on that. And all felony disenfranchisement laws need to be immediately repealed. And this one was pretty creative. You say attorneys should be required to hold malpractice insurance and those wrongfully convicted should have the right to sue for damages. I really like that. I've actually thought that police officers should have a form of malpractice insurance. If you're killing a bunch of people, you're going to get priced out. It doesn't matter what the police union wants to protect. doesn't matter what the police chief wants to protect. If you get insurance, a third-party insurance company involved who only cares about those numbers, you will be priced out. And we can reward the good officers who will make a living wage because they've done the right thing. So I like that idea, but I've never heard it applied to attorneys. That's creative. <laughs> I like your idea of police officers. <laughs> prosecutors are never held accountable no. for anything. And there needs to be a way to hold these prosecutors accountable, especially the ones that hide evidence, you know, cheat, lie, set up these phony grand juries. Take the secrecy out of the grand jury process. What's the big deal? We want to know how these people see what they've been asked to look at, but we never know. One and the stop the killology training of the police. Take them out of combat boots, take away the long rifles, take away the you know cargo pants, and just have them serve and protect. protect. They're not soldiers. Look, I mean, we see the soldiers in Portland in terms of what's happening there. And uh, many, many, many police forces, including Ferguson, show up as if they're in Iraq or somewhere. Yes. And I know we're running out of time, but just thinking about, like mentioned a little bit ago, we spent time doing research in solitary confinement units in a huge prison system in a rural state that has suffered a lot of economic downturn. And if you live in one of those states, and you know, Rust Belt states are an example of those states, Ohio, Pennsylvania, parts of New York, you know, a coal mine or a steel mill shuts and you build a prison, what kind of economic development is that? And yes. what does that say about our country that we think that that's the way that we should lift people out of poverty is to and build a prison, lock some of them up and make the rest of them the keepers <laughs> of the gate. And no other country does that. And all these wardens have gone to Norway, yep. Switzerland, and they get on TV and they say, oh my gosh, you know, they treat people in prison in these places like human beings. That's they want one, them yeah. to be better people when they get out, when they're released. Right. There hasn't been, and this has been going on for a long time now, there hasn't been one thing that I can see, we can see, that has been brought back from those visitations yep, and, and implied here in the United States. Not one. Right. Getting sent to prison is just devastating for a person, and there is just no path back in America. Very sad. There is none. I mean, Pelican Bay, out where you are, closed their solitary units, quote unquote, on paper, and renamed those cells something else. Administrative segregation. And there's still solitary cells. I mean, it's that kind of nonsense that's going on. Mm -hmm. Man, well, so many problems, so little time. But 
I do think we covered a lot of ground. Definitely glad we could highlight aspects of our racial history that don't get into the conversation as often as they should. I'm glad we could talk about poverty traps that people of all races can get stuck in and can unite around trying to improve. And I commend you guys for focusing on something that is so raw. Before we go, do remind the people of your work that you've done together, the website and anywhere else that they should follow up to dive deeper into your work. Yeah, that would be great. I think the best is to go to our website, which is www.smithandhattery.com. So it's S-M-I-T-H-A-N-D-H-A-T-T-E-R-Y.com. We have a blog that's pretty active. We have all see all of the books that we have. You can arrange if you want to invite us to speak on a program like this. So we're really grateful for the opportunity. And yeah, thank you very much for the exposure and the conversation. It's been really awesome. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you guys. I appreciate the time and all your credentials are very impressive for little old me and a lot of good information. (laughs) Do take care and keep fighting the good fight. Thanks. Same to you. You too. Take good care. All right. All right. All right. Smith and Hattery for the win. I thought that was a real enjoyable conversation. I appreciate their approach of, hey, let's just talk about this. It's raw. It's uncomfortable. We will have some differences of opinion. But a lot of this stuff does just need to be talked about. You know, I like that. If we keep letting things go unattended, then we don't do anything to fix them. That said, I'm sure there will be listeners who saw this episode pop up and they think, It's going to be a bit overkill, given that we just had Angela J. Davis here talking about very similar things. I get that. But I did it for a couple of reasons. One, when I want to cover a subject, sometimes I send out several emails, and I might hear back from just one person. And that was the case here. But then Dr. Hattery ended up getting back to me a few weeks later. And I thought, you know, I still want to do this, because when I talked to Angela J. Davis, she was pretty clear that she just wanted to keep the conversation on the criminal justice system. And prosecutors, of course, and rightfully so. It is her expertise. I understand that. But I felt like we left a lot of socioeconomic and structural elements that really needed to be folded in off the table. And I feel better now about covering the full picture, or at least a more complete picture. Because I think Smith and Hattery are pretty strong when it comes to talking about those other elements that make American life more challenging for some of us, especially in the history, which is really what I wanted to focus on, because I'm personally a lot less interested in a deep and thorough conversation about ethnic categories and their fluidity or, I guess, race philosophy, because I just don't really know what to do with that. But there are real practical things that the system has done to black communities that are pretty shocking. I mentioned some of them in my intro. And of course, we all know about a situation like Waco. But what if it was an attack that only hit a black community? Would you know? Well, look into the Tulsa race massacre. In fact, just let me read you the quick version from Wikipedia. The Tulsa race massacre, also called the Tulsa race riot, took place on May 31st and June 1st, 1921, when mobs of white residents, many of them deputized and given weapons by city officials, 
attacked black residents and businesses of the Greenwood District in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It has been called the single worst incident of racial violence in American history. The attack, carried out on the ground and from private aircraft, destroyed more than 35 square blocks of the district. At that time, the wealthiest black community in the United States known as Black Wall Street. More than 800 people were admitted to hospitals and as many as 6,000 black residents were interned in large facilities. The Oklahoma Bureau of Vital Statistics officially recorded 36 dead, but other sources have put the number well into the hundreds. I mean, I didn't even know about that until fairly recently. And there's some serious conspiratorial black history that I wish we were more aware of in conspiracy culture. So today was an attempt to get more into that. More into the poverty trap as well. Something less racial in nature, but also important to understand. I think Dr. Hattery nailed it when she mentioned how the lower and middle class workers have been conditioned to think in terms of black and white, just like blue and red, and that these are the key divisions that keep the system intact. I absolutely think that's true. The elite throw poor white people a quarter and poor black people a dime, and we spend all our time arguing about that 15 cents, you know? Also getting into the prison industrial complex and reconfigured slave labor and plantation prisons. That stuff is exactly what I had in mind too, so that was also a good section. So I liked it. Hopefully those of us who hold different opinions on masks can overlook a few COVID comments that made their way in there. Obviously that wasn't in their book. And I tried to just bring it right back as best I could. Really no big deal. I think we're all having these kind of conversations right now. But in the second hour, we got more into the debt peonage system. Exonerations in particular. Man, it's a shame we didn't get there faster. I actually mentioned the birdwatching example, and I think that woman did actually face a charge for that. But that was really interesting. Exonerations are overwhelmingly for black men. Well, what does that mean? It means we put a lot of black men in prison for things they didn't do. So what good is it citing crime statistics if you're not going to include exonerations? We also talked about reefer madness and racism, black families and social norms and tax policies that perpetuate poverty and keep the poor and middle class from establishing multi-generational wealth. And I think that is so important. We know why the elite stay the elite. A lot of times it is that they circle the wagons around their kind, and they pass it all down through the generations, including the playbook for what they want to do. So it's not surprising to me that multi-generational wealth is something on their minds and something that they try to make sure they can throw a wrench in when we're trying to achieve that. Goes part and parcel with the education conspiracy. We're trained to be obedient workers, not free-thinking entrepreneurs. But you know the drill. Sign up for Plus if you appreciate what I'm doing around here. I know I'm still going to get some cancellations for this one and some backlash because some listeners see anything that tackles black issues as me being a shill for Black Lives Matter. Or buying into the big liberal agenda. And that's just sad because so much of Black Lives Matter to me is an elite funded operation in social division. I agree with a lot of those people. It is a corporate slogan that doesn't really say anything. 
We change our profile picture. People who don't go along with it must be racist. And in the end, most of the donations that are sent to Black Lives Matter, which people think are going to lift up black communities, actually just go to the DNC or to the Biden campaign. And that is very gross. So yeah, Black Lives Matter to me, the movement in its current incarnation is largely an empty gesture. But the system is still slanted against some people, and we need to unpack it. Both can be true. But instead of standing in the street with a sign confronting police officers, maybe just include some black businesses in your rotation. To me, just going to a few local black-owned restaurants is going to do a lot more than sending a check to BLM. But either way, I tried to be fair in this one, and I threw out a lot of the negative feedback that I got on the last episode of this nature and tried to see what today's guest would think of some of that feedback. If it had any value, I definitely tried to throw it out there, although I think a lot of those people, based on their language and the aggressiveness of their comments, I'm sure they've given up on me already. I don't think this came up until the second hour, but I think it's also important to reiterate that I feel that the media selectively shows us white cop on black man incidents to increase racial tensions and try to get these riots started. So I try not to just focus on the specific murder by cop thing, because that's a manipulated aspect, but to look more broadly at policing, and as their book title says, surveillance and management and monitoring of black men, there's a lot there, starting with kids. And you can think whatever you want to think, but for me, it was a disservice to the black friends I do have that we have gone a long time without bringing some of this stuff up. I think it's always in the recipe, and I do hate to be thought of as trendy with this kind of thing, but Here we are. So I just hope the majority of THC listeners can see what I was trying to go for. I don't think we need to hang on every word here or be so uncompromising and rigid when we hear a point or two we might disagree with. Maybe just let it go sometimes and bring the conversation back to common ground. But even if we disregard the super aggro negative feedback I've gotten lately, I'm also just hearing that a lot of people understand that I'm trying to get into some nuance here, but anything political or cultural is just very fatiguing right now. 2020 is just a very heavy year, and we have a mix of listeners where some look to THC to help them cope, some come looking for hope, and some want to hear something completely out of the box and unrelated to what they're getting everywhere else. So I'm going to try to get a lot weirder in the second half of 2020. Of course, guest suggestions are always valuable because those are some of the hardest shows to do. If you are a Plus member, there is a forum thread that is for guest suggestions. Don't be shy. I really enjoyed today's guests, and I hope that we all got something out of the show. But I also really had a blast with Phoenix Aurelius, Bruce Fenton, and the last episode with Josh and Tim. In fact, our next guest is or was supposed to be Chris Knowles, but the East Coast is getting hit by a hurricane right now, and he hasn't had power for like three days now. Man, 2020, am I right, guys? But the show will go on. Thanks for listening. 
dig deeper into Smith and Hattery if you want to digest more of their work. And I'll see you next time. I've done my part. Your move, racial oppressors, poverty perpetuators, and plantation prison operators. Your fucking move. They built a little empire out of some crazy garbage called the blood of the exploited working class. But they've overcome their shyness. Now we're calling them your highness. And the world screams, save me, THC. They destroyed the bonds of friendship and respect between the only people left who'd even look them in the eye. Now they laugh and make a fortune off the same ones that they tortured. And a world screams, save me, THC. Let's look for Jesus. Some will say. See